0: Hey there and welcome to the agentic voice podcast. My name is Kristen Ruiz and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Geneva Maine. And in today's episode, we are gonna be discussing interprofessional practice. And don't forget to follow and subscribe to our channels on Instagram, YouTube, and your favorite podcast platform. So let me introduce to you our very special guest today, who is actually very dear to my heart, Dr. Joshua Glasner. So uh, Dr. Glasner is assistant professor 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 of speech language pathology at Delaware Valley University, where he teaches courses including research methods and speech and hearing science. He also serves on the summer faculty at Westminster Choir College's summer voice pedagogy workshop and his multidisciplinary research involves broad-ranging topics, ranging from historical voice pedagogy and recording technology to the perception of the singing voice and treatment efficacy. Dr. Glasner's scholarly work has been presented at various national and international conferences and has been published in peer-reviewed journals such as the Journal of Voice and the Journal of Acoustical Society of America. Dr. Glasner holds degrees in voice performance and voice pedagogy from the University of Delaware and Westminster Choir College, a certificate in vocology from the National Center for Voice and Speech, and a research doctorate from New York University. So, Josh, it is so lovely to have you here. I am just excited to hear and learn from you.
1: It is always so much fun to, to talk with you, Kristen, and it's good to make new friends with Geneva as well.
2: Oh, we are so grateful that you took some time to have this conversation with us. Um, so we usually begin with our first topic, which is what's new and what's good. Um, and then this segment, we usually talk about something that we are happy, proud, excited about, or something that's new and upcoming in either our professional or personal lives that we'd like to share. So for me right now, that's just um, getting back into the swing of things I just got back from um las vegas (laughs) i didn't do any gambling um but i did some of the lovely desert hiking out there i don't know if you've ever been to vegas Mm -hmm. um but like most people like to go to the shows and things like that but i just love uh hiking in the desert it's one of the most beautiful almost spiritual i just love the colors the isolation so i did a lot of hiking with my sister um, almost every day and then she really wanted to go to Zion Park in Absolutely. Utah have you been there
1: uh, yeah. oh yeah
2: it's my first time so we did the three-hour drive from Vegas area just to go to Utah for one day and we did one of the um just a climb um took a good part of the day and came back down and it was so fun like Absolutely. that feeling of well-being you know so now unfortunately i'm having to deal with a little bit of you know sleep disturbance (laughs) because i'm still a little bit on vegas time but that was a good trip and i'm glad that we got to do that
1: it sounds lovely
2: yeah what's up with you what's new what's good
1: oh nothing quite so exciting but i'm uh (laughs) you know i'm sure we'll talk about it i'm kind of uh (laughs) trying to balance my life between a whole bunch of different things um Mm -hmm. and so in in order to find a little bit more balance i decided to Join a new, uh, really intense fantasy baseball league because who doesn't like to relax by doing some advanced statistics on baseball? Um, <laughs> but the what's good, what's new is that I won my first week, and I'm nice. very excited about that.
2: <laughs> Nicely done. So it's it's interesting that you mentioned baseball because you know I'm not a super super fan of baseball. My dad is, and that was one of the things that we connected on when we were younger. But baseball has changed. Oh, totally. Um, Totally changed. And so I listened to the Daily Podcast on the New York Times, and they were talking about introducing measures to make baseball more interesting. And they're saying one of the things that has hurt baseball is too much focus on home runs
1: yeah that's interesting yeah
2: and uh that's what kind of created that you know um what do they call it in the 2000s when it was all about the home runs and yeah so they
1: actually called it the home run era
2: yes
1: (laughs) which is actually fascinating because nowadays you know they because of the influx of like analytics data analytics into baseball Mm -hmm. they actually for a while were actually using analytics to teach um actually to, to influence the hitter swings. And so they would actually over the past, like five to probably 10 years, maybe just five years, really. They, um, and by they, I mean like the organizations would actually get players to change the launch angle of their bats when they would swing. And that actually increased the number of home runs um, in the past few years, so much so that they actually are introducing rules right now, um, to try and like, um, essentially like speed up the game and and actually increase the amount of offense even more
2: yeah so yeah that's one of the things that i thought was so interesting that they're in they're introducing a pitch clock yep and when i think of a pitch clock i think of like a shot clock in basketball yeah and how that makes things a little bit more exciting because exactly. it's like the time's running out you know but um so it'll be interesting to see if i get back into baseball because of this because it really did when when they got the um the cameras to look at, you know, was it actually a, uh, a out or right. things like that? It got boring. It's like too technical now, but.
1: Well, and they were taking so much time, right? Like the pictures would take so much time, which is a really interesting, uh, you know, concept when we think about performance and like what one needs to do mentally to prepare for performance, right? We have these like 30 year olds who are excellent at what they do, but for a good 10 15 20 years they've been learning how to do this task differently right yes. and now all of a sudden you're introducing this pitch clock to improve how enjoyable the game is to yeah. improve the product but you have pitchers who are completely falling apart now because um. the task that they're having to do doesn't match the one they trained to do for over a decade so Inter- that's a really interesting like kind of overlap with what we do interesting enough in part of this balance idea I had a bunch of cancellations yesterday in terms of professional obligations. I decided to go to a baseball game with my brother and the, um, the, I loved the pitch clock other than pitchers imploding. It was, it was, I mean, the game took two and a half hours and they went into extra innings. It was, it was a, it was a well paced, it was enjoyable. Um, and I think pitchers will learn because once they, Realize what the task is. They'll be trained to do that.
2: So, do you think it'll be harder now? We're probably talking about too much baseball, but I'm <laughs> I, I'm I will never complain
1: about talking about baseball. Will it be harder? I know. I think it's a. It different is a task, performance right? task. <laughs> it's a. It is a performance task, but it's a different. You know, they will find different coping me- mechanisms to find ways to slow their heart rate, to refocus on the task at hand. Um, and I think what we're finding is that the teams that were able to. Train their pitchers to complete the new task are more successful now than the ones who kind of just figured that the pitchers were professionals and would figure it out themselves, right? Hmm. Which is a nice so, learning moment.
2: So, do you think it'll be harder now to pitch the perfect game or no?
1: I think if you look at the younger players right now, mm-hmm. um. If you look at the younger players right now, they've been doing this um, in the minor leagues for Mm. a number of years already, and they're fine. So I really think it's just a task. It's the specificity of the task.
2: Cool. That's something that we're going to be talking about soon, specificity. Indeed. (laughs) All right, cool. All right. So what's up with you, Kristen? What's new? What's good?
0: Well, you guys are bringing up flashbacks to uh, fourth grade, because my only experience with uh, softball uh, and baseball is is fourth grade. And I was on the team called the Buzzards. And they won every year until the year that I joined. And I'd like to think that that is not correlated.
2: You killed the game,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Kristen. See, we're talking about the pitch clock, but in fact, it was Kristen.
2: I mean, on a team called the Buzzards. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and when the the other the other ones were like the starlings, the sparrows, these Aww. like like other things and then and then the buzzards. Yeah, so talk about trauma informed approaches. Let's let's get into it. Uh, what's, good in, <laughs> what's new and good with me? Well, what's good is that it is warm weather and I was outside today and the birds are chirping. The lake is beautiful. So I was really enjoying other than allergies. Um, you know, it's just, it feels so good. Uh, one of my singers said, why do we celebrate the new year in January? Why don't we do it in the spring? Now it feels like the new. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I really respond to that energy. And then, um, actually what I'm really celebrating too is, is aligned with the interprofessional kind of thing that, that we're going to be touching on today. Just coincidental, but, um, uh, I actually had, um, Josh, you'll, you'll remember. Uh, Josh and I know each other from our NYU days, and um, I had Bill Westbrooks, uh, He's a, a well-known um, director, educator, author, come and work with our singers. So it was really fun this week to be able to collaborate again. While he's doing, you know, he's doing the acting side, I was doing the voice side, and um, to be able to collaborate with him was was great. So um, and i love how iron sharpens iron you know Mm -hmm. um and even just talking about the same ideas but with new spins new insights because we're all growing people right so how we talk about the work today is different than how we talked about it a couple years ago so i'm kind of celebrating uh collaboration and and just i love being stretched in my thinking and that's what happened this week because of really great colleagues so so that's where i am
1: bill is good people
0: he is good people right um so let's head on to um our next segment we call it experience strength and hope and josh i have to ask you you have a foot in all these different worlds when you say balance i almost want to laugh because Hmm. it's more of a juggling act i would imagine so you know you're a singer you are music you're a music academic and then you pivot into the you know being a clinical um, academic so i imagine that this positionality provides an interesting perspective and and insights that those of us who are maybe more bounded in our side might not get to see so can you like share with us a little bit about how, you know, about your own vocal journey and how it led you to where you are right now.
1: Sure. I was thinking about our conversation today. I was thinking back to, you know, when this journey, I guess, started. I remember back to when I was in high school and I had a not so easy upbringing and actually like lived with my voice teacher and her family for a good like six or seven months um, at one and. At, at one point we were raking leaves outside and my voice teacher would send me, she would have me help with students, she would help like her voice lessons, she would have me listen to different singers and like see how I might try to help them maybe as this like 17 year old schmuck who didn't know anything maybe, um, but maybe had decent instincts and we were raking leaves and she said, you know, Josh, you might someday think about going into vocal pedagogy. Because, there, you know, there are people who do that, and I'm like, vocal pedo, what? <laughs> um, and, and I had no clue what it was, and I don't think I really knew what it was e- until I started like studying it later. Well, I was, I'm, I'm, sometimes I move a little bit too quickly, and that was the case with my singing journey. Um, I would try to, I had a good voice, but I was trying to make progress too quickly, or what I thought of as progress too quickly with some instruction and some of my own choices kind of got tied up in knots at one point going from like having a very nice voice to not being able to actually make the sounds I wanted to make um, or communicate in that way, which was like really meaningful to me and like actually helped me through some of those difficult times. So in any event, I got to this point where I wasn't able to sing in a reasonable range. Um, or navigate registration or do things that I should have been, that I was expected to do at the time in undergrad. And so what did I do? I started reading because of course, reading can fix everything. Well, I started with Bird and Coffin's book um, and, and just like ate that up. Um, and, and for listeners who, who might not be familiar with Bird and Coffin, it's this um, author from like the 80s, 70s and 80s who had this whole systemized, uh, or systematic way of teaching voices um, that used kind of what we understood about singing voice acoustics back then, which was not quite how we understand it now, but pretty brilliant for 1970, 1980. Um, anyway, so I read all these books and, and thinking it was going to help me. Um, and I didn't really help myself, but I learned a lot. And then all of a sudden, I knew all these things about all these voice pedagogy texts and voice science texts, and was working through Ingo Tietz's book. And then went to Westminster Choir College because I, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful voice pedagogy program. Um, and uh, ended up, you know, really feeling seen there as a, as a you know, voice pedagogy nerd, working in a lab, learning how to use all this nerdy instrumentation equipment went to NYU, studied with Brian Gill, got to work with Aaron Johnson um, on my dissertation. Um, And and that's kind of how I went about, like, becoming, you know, kind of interested and um, ingrained in the singing voice research world. Well, NYU has a Ph.D., um, and that is a type of degree that um, ASHA requires for um, accreditation in schools in in universities and I got the, you know, after three years of working as a music academic, I got this, you know, message from a friend saying, hey, you know, we really need someone, some people to apply for this this gig, this job in this new program that we're starting. Um, actually, I reached out because he posted a Facebook, you know, post of all things. And he was, then I was like, ah, I'm not gonna do this. And then he messaged me and was like, please apply. And that's, I had already been thinking about this transition to SLP um, really three, four years ago, maybe even sooner than that. But I had been speaking with my mentor at NYU. Um, and we were like, you know what, let's just see how academia plays out. You know, this might be, this might work out like, and then the pandemic happened Mm -hmm. and I took another job and, um, and I just felt like I needed to, I've always wanted to help people. Um, and I've always wanted, I've always been drawn to helping people, um, communicate through voice. Um, and I just, as much as I loved data, you know, baseball analytics, I didn't think just cutting everything and going to another field was the really prudent path. And so this made a lot of sense. So I can work in some of the same like areas that I love, work with the people that I know and love, um, and kind of just essentially de- continue to develop skills that will allow me to help people with their voices, but just from a, a, an additional, you know, perspective. I think I got a little bit like off the beaten path of the question, but in terms of the vocal journey, right? There's this, this path that most of us go through, which is my voice doesn't really work. How am I going to quote unquote fix it? And then we all find different paths. And some of for some of us, it might be that one voice feature for some of us, it might be taking a step back for some of us. It might be, you know, learning how to teach. And then all of a sudden, the things that you're learning kind of start, pardon me, uh, kind of start, um, you know, uh, taking taking life in in your own in your own singing, right. So voice wasn't working, found a real passion for voice research, um, really wanted to expand that skill set to work with injured voices a bit more directly. um, And now I'm kind of straddling both worlds, while I, while I, um, you know, teach more academic subjects um, and also get my clinical degree.
2: You really strike me as someone, you know, from all of the, what you just said. You really strike me as someone who just loves to learn, you know, whether it's independently reading books or you know doing research, and now you find yourself in a communication sciences and disorders program at Delaware Valley and you are doing another master's. Well, what do you hope to accomplish? How do you hope to leverage this uh, degree in speech language pathology once it's completed?
1: Absolutely, I mean, I think, you know, I was speaking with a very good friend when I was trying to make this decision because it was a hard decision to make. I was, I felt fulfilled in music academia. I felt like I had a place, Um, you know, I was finding forward momentum professionally um, and I love teaching voice, right? Um, so it was a hard decision to kind of just do a hard pivot. Um, but really, I think ultimately when I was speaking with this friend, it really like a light bulb came off, went off in my mind. He was like, you know, Josh, the reason you can't see yourself going down this path or can't like fully envision this path is because the job you have doesn't exist, your job you're going to have in five years doesn't exist yet because you're going to kind of straddle these two worlds whether that's working my current position and then building a private practice or working my current position and expanding the curricular offerings there right like whatever is going to happen in the next five years isn't something that we can really pin down right now once he said that i was like you know what i just need to be myself right now do good work and then see what happens, see what doors open, because that's exactly what happened here. I was expecting that I might have to take prerequisite courses, you know, while teaching in music and academia and then decide later what would happen. But in fact, I got this job, really wonderful opportunity, really wonderful opportunity to also get my clinical degree. Um, And so ultimately what I think I'm going to end up doing um, or what I kind of low-key hope to be doing. Put it out there. (laughs) Right? I really would like to find myself in a position, hopefully here, um, where I can be contributing significantly to like curricular and programmatic development, so that we can really have um, like we're going to talk about it today, true collaboration between SLPs and and voice teachers who work from it both work from an evidence-based perspective um and and kind of train people alongside much like they do at svi but in a in a way that augments that that experience
2: so you know as you're taking these classes is there anything that you didn't expect you know in case like there might be other voice uh professionals or singers thinking of doing the same thing is there anything that you didn't expect just to kind of Let people
1: know, (laughs) you know, you know, and I'm sure you have experienced this to to some extent yourself, whenever you talk about whenever you talk to recruiters or professors who are working in graduate school and SLP programs about wanting to specialize in voice, the thing you will always hear from everyone is well remember speech language pathology is more than just voice. Um, and what they mean is remember, you're going to have to take, take speech, uh, you're going to have to take speech, sound disorders and child language disorders. Um, and right. I think, and I was talking with a professor at Iowa, um, <laughs> last year. And I was like, you know what? Everybody says that. And that doesn't, it doesn't scare me. Like it's just learning. As you said, I enjoy learning. Will I work in a school setting with children who can't pronounce L no, never. <laughs> And is it fine? But it's good to yes. have the option, and right? It's good to have the option. It's good to know that. Um, and it, and it may, allows me to appreciate someone else in another domain, right? With right. another specialty. Right. Um, yet, um, I, I, what this professor at Iowa said was, you know, I've always just found it interesting. And I think that's the case. Like, the, the first thing that I'd say to people considering this path is you will always get people who say, remember, it's not just voice and they are totally right and you're going to have to, you know, work your way through that and jump through that hoop. Um in a way, right? Not to be blithe, but you're going to that is something you have to learn as an SLP. Right. right. But it's interesting. There are interesting parts of it, right? And it really aligns well with the motor learning part of um what we do um as voice teachers. Um so there there's something you can learn in everything. The thing that I didn't expect I have no clue why i didn't expect this was that writing energy is writing energy it doesn't matter if you're writing a two-pager or if you're writing your latest research article if you're writing you're taking energy from the other Mm -hmm. and i didn't real i i don't know why i didn't think of that that like my articles would slow my production would slow down (laughs) because i was writing about you know children on the autism spectrum um for a random assignment right Mm -hmm. Um, so that, you know, I'd say recognize that you're not that priorities will change, but that like the 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 things that are required of you will increase. And therefore, you're going to have to pull energy from different places and to kind of be, you know, kind to yourself. I mm, could beat that's... myself over not getting four articles published this semester, or I could just say, you know what? they're not that far from being published. And I also will have a degree after this.
2: That is really, really good advice, because I've been living that experience <laughs> for the last couple of years. I don't know, Kristen would agree, because, you know, when you you're doing a doctorate, you there's a lot of energy going into writing, and you might be yep. wanting to do more fun things, more performance type things or music and ugh, the writing, it's, it's good to do the writing, but it's good oh, and, I, the research. and I
1: love I love mm-hmm. the writing. I just wish I had more time and more energy to do the writing right. that that I
2: that I um, you know, particularly enjoy. Right. I, I totally get that.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that too. Um, you know, uh from my perspective you know working on the dissertation so there's that writing curriculum design then there there's copies uh, i run a private right. studio so there's that copy and you know that that idea that it takes energy and writing is writing writing is thinking writing is thinking and yeah. getting it expressed you know so yeah i really i really appreciate that um as you move forward are you gonna um keep a foot in you know the the research and and continue to develop that
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have two whiteboards full of projects that are being presented at Voice Foundation or in the process of being developed or where we're in the process of analyzing data. So I have that pipeline going. Right now, as I said, the writing is a little bit, um, you know, there's a little bit of a slowdown there. Um, But that's certainly something I intend to do. I'm also still teaching privately, teaching voice privately. Um, Although, of course, I'm not like actively trying to build my studio right now. Um, It's more just maintaining you know, clients who've been with me for years. Um, And, and then certainly even like, you know, I'm, I'm teaching at Westminster Choir College's Summer Voice Pedagogy Institute this summer. I'm also teaching at Boston Conservatory's um, Voice Pedagogy professional workshop, um, or professional development workshop. I'm sorry if I messed up that name. Uh, But but, you know, those things actually are, it's really reassuring to me, honestly, because again, I didn't know how my career would develop. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'm seeing is between guest lectures and outreach with high schools and stuff and with research and with these summer workshops and, and collaborations, everything's still there. I have to be more diligent and intentional about where I put my energies, right, as we just talked about. But I see as, as long as I'm intentionally, you know, putting things in each of those buckets, they're still getting, you know, ample attention. Mm-hmm. That was a very nerdy way of saying that. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Nerdy ways are very welcome here. Yeah. It
2: makes the podcast more interesting. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In terms of research, I think it's interesting that one of the first books you picked up was burton coffin
1: yeah right and
0: when i'm thinking about uh when i'm thinking about it you're kind of in that lineage if you think oh indeed i mean because burton coffin um and then barbara, had Dasher. The student barbara Dasher, and then brian gill and then you- so you actually come from the lineage of research and enhancing and looking at things in new ways
1: and it it wasn't really intentional it was pretty pretty serendipitous where all of a sudden i'm learning this stuff that you know barbara said and then (laughs) um all of us you know of course i knew that barbara had studied with burden um but it it's very you know and i have a good friend and collaborator john nix who also studied with barbara and so it's it's really um i don't know it feels it's a it's a nice you know realization that you're connected to this this lineage
0: yeah I the opportunity to uh, interview john nix mm-hmm. regarding his work with dasher and it, it, was fa- it was fabulous yeah um yeah so in terms of singing research sure what are you excited about and and how do you see any of it benefiting you know clinicians and practitioners you know on yeah. both sides yeah what, what are you excited about
1: and, and by, like, clinicians and practitioners, you mean, like, SLPs and SLP voice and teachers, singing voice teachers. teachers. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's part of my, like, research um, portfolio that I'm just trying to, I'm trying to figure out where, how that fits, right? Because I, I don't know, I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I don't know if I'm ever going to be the type of academic who's, like, going for, like, multi-million dollar grant or multi-hundred thousand dollar grants. Um, I don't know if that's, like, either in the cards for me or even the right path for me. Um, But I do want to, A, look at, investigate things that interest me. (laughs) B, investigate things that hopefully will help other people or help us understand um, things about, you know, singing voice voice science and also, you know, this kind of relationship between habilitation and rehabilitation. Um, What I think is happening is that I'm starting to, make a little bit of a pivot with my research where in the past i've looked at historical recording technology kind of from a digital signal processing perspective i've looked at vibrato i've looked at perception of vibrato um what else i've looked at room acoustics in vibrato somehow i got like you know caught up in this vibrato thing um but what i'm really i'm starting a project right now and i think that it's going to be the first of a series of projects that actually looks at tasks that we might have singers or voice or people in, in in voice therapy do and look at the efficacy the effects of those tasks because in in other you know we have a couple different things in between the a couple different tasks within SLP and the singing voice world that have been studied i'm thinking about um you know so i'm thinking about straw phonation i'm thinking about strophonation in a water bottle i'm thinking about you know, um, voice therapy, mm-hmm. um, but we don't have a lot of like specific tasks that have been studied. We have specific tasks that people say, Oh, that works. That's cool. Um, and then they do it. And that's kind of folk pedagogy. Um, and I'm really interested in saying, okay, well, you're doing this type of exercise. You're doing this specific exercise. What are you trying to do with it? What's the desired result? Well, let's measure that result. Right. Mm-hmm. And the goal isn't, my goal isn't really to tell people what to do, right? It's not to prescribe like, here, I want you to do this task with your singers, which is what I think a study of a method would do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My goal is really to be able to provide evidence for practitioners and clinicians to be able to say this type of exercise, this type of task does this. I'm choosing to do, use it with this client, um, singing or speaking voice. Um, for this reason. And I think, I hope that that type of thing will be useful to uh, clinicians and practitioners. I don't know that it's particularly fundable.
2: I think you might be surprised.
1: <laughs> I, I, I'm happy to be surprised.
2: <laughs> All right. So um, we're going to go into our final segment, okay. which is um, the agency practices. And we've kind of already begun to touch on it a little bit, but for our last segment, we like to highlight agentic practices that help to free and empower voices or empower people who may have been marginalized or experienced trauma. I know you have an interest in greater collaboration between clinicians and vocal pedagogues. This would be fall under the principle of collaboration and mutuality in a trauma-informed approach. And I believe it's what SLPs and healthcare providers call interprofessional practice, which I know you're probably um, learning about and teaching at Delaware Valley. But so that we can um, clear that up for our listeners, um, according to SAMHSA, in this principle of collaboration and mutuality, importance is placed on partnering and leveling of power differences, which is a big deal in, I think, um, the music world, the performance world in the clinical world when people have different kinds of training, different levels of training. We want to demonstrate that healing happens in relationships and in the meaningful sharing of power and decision-making. Everyone has a role to play in a trauma-informed approach. And as one expert stated, one does not have to be a therapist to be therapeutic. So um, can you speak a little bit more about why this topic is near and dear to you? Um, And um, how you hope to achieve it.
1: <laughs> small, small questions. Right. <laughs> um, right. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about this, uh, this idea of collaboration, right? And I, and I think back to past experiences. Um, well, let's backtrack a little bit, right? Like, think back to when we like, as vocalists, like, found the answer, right, in quotes, for our own voices. I I think that at that point, like for most people, what happens is you find the thing that works for you and if, especially if a bunch of things didn't work before that, then all of a sudden that's the answer and you become a bit of a, a bit of an apostle for that, right? A bit of an evangelist rather for that, for that method or that, mm-hmm. that approach. And, and I think that voice is so personal, like this is something we say, right? It's a little bit like kitsch to say, right? It's, or, 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 you know, whatnot. It's a little bit bit cheesy to say, because we all, we all say it. Um, cliche is the word I'm looking for. It's so personal, but because of that, when you find something that works for you, you want that. And you're, as a teacher, you, or as a therapist, you want that for other people, you want to help other people. And so you kind of, it's easier to see things in black and white in absolutes, right? And I think in terms of the collaboration part of things, right? Um, I think that there are less people, I want to see if I can intentionally say it, like really carefully say this. I think that there are less people in, the, in our field, broad field, who are willing to like fully trust the person in the other discipline, whether that's the voice teacher trusting the SLP or the SLP fully trusting the voice teacher. Mm-hmm. We are taught to appreciate each other's scope of practice. We're mm-hmm. taught to appreciate each other's um, knowledge base and experience, um, but we are we infrequently are taught ways to actually collaborate in ways that will benefit the person, the client in front of us. Yeah. Right. And so I think I think that um, I, I really think that that's where the where the bone is buried. Um, not saying like, well, that SLP only has a bachelors of music or the SLP saying, well, that, 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 that voice teacher only has a certificate of vocology from NCVS. Right. Right. Um, I think really being able to appreciate what the other part of the same discipline really offers is, is where we start to find some real, like real collaboration and real, like. Healing for the person in front of us, not for ourselves, right? Um, that you, that you just that touched on ego, right? You just
0: poked a bear, right? Yes.
1: I'll move away quickly. <laughs> um, so, so you know, I, I I just think that happens through training, and Svi does a wonderful job of this. Mm-hmm. And I think that we can go even further with that as a as a as a foundation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think if we find ways to to concurrently inter- and, and separately, right? if we interweave curriculum so that both um, voice singing voice teachers from an evidence-based perspective and S- certified SLPs learn how to work with voice, professional and otherwise together, then actually we can be more useful for each other. Cause then it's not just like, okay, the singers are gonna learn voice disorders now and the SLPs are gonna learn how to play five note scales. <laughs> But rather, you know, we're actually helping students to learn from each other, to appreciate their, their own knowledge. And Kristen, I was thinking about this as well. There was a, years ago, years ago, which makes us sound old. Um, but the audience doesn't see my receding hairline, so I still seem young. <laughs> um, so, uh, years ago, you said to me, something to the effect of, I'm gonna paraphrasing, paraphrase incorrectly or imperfectly, but you said, Knowledge isn't a clean slate. Students aren't a clean slate. Knowledge is a tree mm-hmm. that you that you graft and grow onto, something like that. It, it was much more eloquent, I'm sure. But <laughs> it
0: sounds like something. Like <laughs> <on the> <laughs> but
1: but but this is. I mean, you know, there is so going through this process of having a terminal degree, having a profession, having a career, and then kind of backtracking, but kind of not, and also taking prerequisite courses back, uh, you know, last year, and then also taking clinical courses, um, you know, courses in the clinical degree, there's so much overlap. There's way too much overlap to be building up walls between these two domain, these two related disciplines. Right. Um, And I think that the key with everything lies in education and training intentionally to, foster that actual co- collaboration not appreciation of each other's fields
2: I, I think this is really important because you know most people can't afford right. or don't have the opportunity to get three four and five degrees you right. know get a degree in you know voice and then uh, performance and speech pathology and maybe massage therapy and you know, all the things I'm that just people gonna learn hire to
0: Josh to get my next one
2: <laughs> <laughs> like most people, Most people can't afford to do that. So what we need to do is get better at the collaboration piece. And, you know, in fairness, um, it's something that struggle, people struggle with in, you know, most institutions and most places where people of different um, professions are working together. But this is why I strongly believe in a trauma informed approach, because these six key principles Um, can kind of prevent the kind of friction, uh, disrespect, or, or, um, you know, power dynamics that make collaboration just fall apart. Um, When people have the feeling of safety and they trust the people that they're working with, then that's when true collaboration happens for the benefit of, you know, the student, um, the performer, you know the uh, the patient, so it is something. It's a passion area for for me as well.
0: Yeah, let me. I, I want to speak to, or ask about something. I think yeah. when we're talking about this kind of collaboration, and and when we're talking about putting egos aside yeah. and um, suspending, you know, judgment and and learning together and giving ourselves the vulnerability to have our expectations violated you know in learning theory we talk about learning is when your expectations are violated and then new space has to be made for new things but that that's a tension-filled process that we're willingly putting ourselves in and there could be a, a point where oh my goodness things that i've said for years now i need to reframe, refine, you know, and that can be very uncomfortable. So when I think about, you know, as individuals, if we want to go from, you know, say wherever we are to higher ground, one of the first things we have to do is address our identity. Like, who are we? Who do we have to show up as to make this possible? So one of the things that I'm curious um, about your thoughts, Josh, on like, what must we believe as, you know, voice care workers? What must we believe to make that possible? And who do we need to become to make that kind of collaboration possible?
1: I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm waxing poetic, right? Or, or, or philosophical, of course. So it's easier to say these things than to actually do them in practice, I suppose. But I think um,
0: language leads to reality, right? <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: I mean, I think, I think we have to, and this is, I mean, I hope this hits home for a lot of people or else it's just very telling about me, right? Um, I think we have to assume that other professionals are competent. That just because someone doesn't share our experience doesn't mean that they are not competent and and proficient professionals, right? Um, And I and I think that there's a lot of both worlds, uh, right? As someone who's kind of straddling both and 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 knows that like that statement kind of will. Could cause me to get flack from both sides. Um, you know, I think that a lot of us are incredulous about the. I, I like to joke that most voice teachers don't think that there are any other good voice teachers, <laughs> right? Like that's that's a running joke that I have with some friends. Um, and I think that that's that's key here, right? Like if you work with voice, we cannot see this instrument. We have really honestly. Relatively rudimentary tools to actually objectively analyze this instrument. Um, there are tools, right? My specialization, part of my specialization, is in instrumentation. There are tools and and singing voice acoustics. There are tools. There are metrics, um, but there, there, there. It requires a lot of interpretation, um, and I think that um, it, it, it. The first step is expecting that other people will have the same amount of success as you with a, with a client, with a patient, with a student. Mm-hmm. The second is who, who do you have to be? Well, you have to be trusting, right? You have to trust that your voice teacher colleague is going to stay away from rehabilitation because it's not within their scope of practice. And you have to trust that your SLP colleague is going to be able to tell you the type, the therapy that they're doing, that they're there, the, the type of intervention that they're using with their patient. Um, and that, that, and that, um, when it comes time for them to move from rehabilitation to habilitation, that they're going to trust you to continue that process. Right. And that they trust you both that, that each other, that we trust our expertise, um, and that we have, we have this shared knowledge that can be used to benefit and to heal the person in front of us in different ways. Mm. Right. So there's a trusting element, I think of it as well as, you know, putting one's ego aside.
0: Yeah. I think the other, as you're talking too, I'm thinking like curiosity has to be kind of one of the guiding values of what no, one's going to show up to the room empty handed. So it's like curious about how do you perceive, what's going on and and how do you see the tools and strategies and, and all the things that we bring to the table, how do you see that informing and, and through that curiosity, even if there's moments of maybe some, you know, um, abrasion in terms of how we would perceive it, you know, if I, like, oh, I would always, I would see it this way or I hear it this way and somebody else hears it another, if there's that curiosity and that trust, right. Then I think the other thing is believing that there's a way to come together and co-create new knowledge.
1: Right. Well, and you know, one of my my professors in grad school at Westminster used to say, everyone, everyone, like, you're never going to learn or run out of people who want to sing. There's always going to be American Idol. There's always going to be, you know, America's Got Talent, right? Everyone wants to sing. There's always going to be the church choir. Right. And, and I think we fall into this scarcity mindset all too quickly. You know, there are always going to be clients. There are always going to be people who want to sing. We're not fighting for the same people. Right. And in fact, the collaboration might actually help us to, you know, share more (laughs) effectively. Um, and increase our, you know, the size of our studios if we need to, or it, our our caseload if we need to, which is never an issue for SLPs. Um, increasing <laughs> caseload, <laughs> um, you know. So, so I, I I think that moving away from that scarcity mindset and recognizing that we're we're all we're all part of the same team, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, if ha- if ha- you know, you and you and Geneva are a great example, Kristen, right? Like. You are you are a team that where you have an SLP and you have a, a singing voice teacher, and you know you both have an understanding of each other's domain disciplines, right? And and I'm sure and you're talking about it freely in front of people, um, which is challenging enough, right? Um, you know, we can. It's all, not all lovey-dovey, but I think we can we can find ways to put ego aside, be curious about what other people, um, you know, what other people know that we don't know. Right. And how can't how 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 would that not make us better voice teachers and clinicians if we if we augment our understanding?
2: Right. Right. And and exercise um, trust. Yes. You know, like I, I just um, remember one of my first jobs, you know, when I first got my master's degree and I worked with an administrator who had done her Ph.D. in collaboration. Mm. And she said the single most important thing to have a successful collaboration was trust. You know, trust that the other person um, has uh, your well being, that they're not going to like shout out to the world. Did you know Geneva doesn't really know what she's doing? <laughs> <laughs> you understand each other's strengths and weaknesses, and you respect that, and you you sharpen each other. We love to say. Iron sharpens iron Um, because it's true. When you're in that relationship where you trust each other, you understand your strengths and weaknesses, where you guys need to grow, um, and respect that you're with someone or working with a team where you guys do want to be A1 and be on your A game, Um, you trust the process and you respect each other. So I'll never forget that I think that was, you know, I was able to learn at the beginning of my career. And I think it was the one of the greatest things I've ever learned. Um, and also I recognize that not everyone feels safe enough to exercise trust, Of course. you know? And so you work from that. Um, you, you look for the people who, who are ready to, to do that. Um, and then you understand that the people who aren't they might be uh, operating from a, um, a feeling of, well, nothing is safe right. or, you know, a background of hurt um, where it's not safe to trust um, and it doesn't have to be personal or animosity or things like that. So that was one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned. So I'm excited to see where this goes um, over time.
1: It's funny, I, so lately with most guest lectures and webinars and podcasts, I've been f- closing with the same thought um, because I think it's helpful for society right now. Um, and that is a probably poorly quoted um, statement from uh, Ron Scher at Bowling Green back years ago at Voice Foundation, and he said something to the effect of um, good science seeks to disprove one's own opinion. And, and I think that when we're searching for evidence, um, we have to be careful not to be trying to search for evidence that proves our point. Um, or when we're searching, when we're investigating a topic, it's helpful to try to prove ourselves wrong rather than to prove ourselves right, because our science is going to be more rigorous, um, and our, and our conclusions are going to be, uh, founded on, you know, better principles, um. And, and so that's, that's, I I think that's something that's helpful for society as a whole, as we as we continue to learn how science changes and evolves, and good for us as practitioners and clinicians as we, you know, seek to use evidence to, you know, uh, inform our own practice, right, it's easy to find things to, my grandfather used to say, um, smart people can convince themselves of anything.
2: (laughs) Very cool. All right, so in this episode, we discuss Joshua Glassner's journey from vocal performance and pedagogy to research and clinical practice and I shouldn't say journey from because his uh, hands are still in all of those um, pots. We also discussed the importance of collaboration and mutuality in a trauma informed approach. If you enjoy this episode of the Agentic Voice podcast, please show your support by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and to our YouTube channel. Until next time, take care.